You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Great strides have been made in the acute treatment of acute coronary syndromes, but how do we primary care providers cement those gains? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Sean Goodman, Associate Head and Staff Cardiologist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto, and Co-Chair of the Canadian Heart Research Centre. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Goodman. Thank you. Could you outline for us what we primary care providers should be thinking about when we follow up with an acute coronary syndrome patient? My pleasure. I like to think of the different things that I need on a checklist when I see patients myself and follow up with respect to secondary prevention of coronary heart disease. And I like to think about the ABCs. And the A's uh, comprise antiplatelet therapy, which would be uh, aspirin uh, for lifetime. And in some instances where patients have had stents or recently had a myocardial infarction, that might involve another antiplatelet therapy, Plavix or Clopidogrel. And the other part of the A's would be an ACE inhibitor. Uh, These uh, work in patients who have congestive heart failure, who have left ventricular systolic dysfunction with ejection fractions that are below 35 to 40% range, but they also work in the long run as vascular protection agents. Under the B's, beta blockers and blood pressure lowering is important. Under the C is cholesterol lowering therapy. For D, there's three things that are important. It's important to to tell the patient don't smoke, smoking cessation. It's important to control diabetes, and tied with that is a dietary uh, modification and control. Under E would be exercise. Some modest activity would be important to reduce the risk of subsequent cardiovascular events. And F is a follow-up. It's really important that we revisit with the patient each opportunity that we have that the preceding A, B, C, D, and E's are being undertaken on a consistent basis. I like that framework. That's a nice way to think of it in, in the office setting. Let me go back and ask you a few specific things under these different headings. If we go to the B's and the beta blocker, does there seem to be much difference if we take a beta-1 selective agent or a non-selective agent? As time has gone by, it probably appears to be less important from a secondary prevention perspective. There are lots of different beta blockers, of course, out there all of them with touted differences. As you mentioned, there's some pharmacologic differences, some selectivity differences. But at the end of the day, most of the studies that have been examining these agents post-myocardial infarction or even in stable angina, both as an anti-ischemic agent but also as a therapy that can prevent subsequent cardiovascular events like recurrent myocardial infarction or arrhythmias, most of the time, the beta blockers have been consistently beneficial. So when you and I went through medical school, there was a, a lot more focus on the selectivity uh, and different properties. At the end of the day, pretty much looks like a, a class effect. There are some specific settings uh, where some beta blockers have been shown to be better than others, in particular, post-myocardial infarction with congestive heart failure. Carvedilol was shown to be better than metoprolol, but even metoprolol is, a, is an excellent agent in most other settings. So I think the most important is is getting a beta blocker that the patient will tolerate. And when we talk about tolerability, not only the individual properties, but something that's once a day as compared to two or three times a day, in general, I think that principle is more likely uh, to lead uh, patients to greater compliance. That makes very good sense. 
And then in terms of the other B, the blood pressure control, the JNC guidelines now are saying optimal under 120 over 80. And we used to think 140 over 90. And the American Diabetes Association, 130 over 80 or 85. Do you have uh, guidelines for us about what numbers we should be going for? Well, I, I think that you're absolutely right that our threshold, uh, both to treat and to uh, target for therapies, uh, has lowered over time. And I think the current goals, uh, particularly for sort of secondary prevention or after a heart attack or in the long-term management of a patient with established heart disease, Definitely, the goal would be to get the blood pressure below 140 uh, over 90, and in patients who have diabetes or chronic kidney disease, even more aggressive, a target range would be more in the uh, less than 130 over 80 range, and those are obviously uh, some general targets, but the lower it appears, the better uh, when one looks at uh, a number of different studies. Obviously, we don't want to make the patient symptomatic and have the blood pressure lowered too aggressively, too quickly. In general, I think we should start with those sort of 140 over 90 or less than that value for most patients and less than 130 over 80 for the particularly high-risk patients such as those with diabetes or chronic kidney disease. So somewhat akin to the cholesterol goals, it seems lower is better, at least for LDL cholesterol. Just don't make them hypotensive when they're on uh, double antiplatelet therapy. (laughs) We don't want them to fall and uh, have a bleed. Right, and then speaking of cholesterol, which is the C, this is a very interesting area. The LDLs under 70? Yeah, that seems to be the way to go. Again, similar to the blood pressure story, it appears over time that lower is better, and the goals have progressively decreased, the thresholds have progressively decreased uh, over time. Uh, I think now we're at the point where definitely a patient with established heart disease has to have an LDL target less than 100 milligrams per deciliter, but there is some strong push towards being even more aggressive, as you mentioned. In fact, further reduction to an LDL uh, cholesterol of less than 70 milligrams per deciliter uh, is probably a very reasonable approach. We have less data to absolutely guide us that uh, 70 or less than 70 is the magic number. Several uh, studies and observational analyses, it looks like there doesn't appear to be a sort of lower threshold. So the more aggressive we can get, the better. And of course, this doesn't preclude dietary and lifestyle modification. Uh, All the studies that looked at these particular additions, for example, statins, to the usual routine in lowering cholesterol, all those patients received uh, uh, guidance on dietary modification, and we can't forget those things. But I think we're increasingly recognized, perhaps because of uh, genetic uh, tendency, inheritance, people uh, with uh, atherosclerotic heart disease often have higher LDL cholesterols than their heart arteries are going to tolerate. And even with aggressive dietary modification, they probably still can't get to those uh, targets that we just outlined. And what is the role of the newcomer Zetia? Well, with respect to the statins, there have been a number of studies, as you point out, over time. And there are a number of established statins in terms of their efficacy, in fact, even in not only lowering LDL cholesterol, which of course all the statins do, but actually translating that into clinical outcome differences. The next studies were done with uh, simvastatin and pravastatin, and uh, those were very successful in in lowering clinical adverse outcomes in addition to just the LDL profile improvement. And those drugs were pushed to higher and higher doses and certainly uh, reached a point at which 
beyond the conventional dosing that we use, there seem to be some uh, side effects, in particular some serious side effects, rarely, but importantly, that limited uh, further increases in the doses of those therapies. And then more recently, atorvastatin has shown uh, repeatedly in a number of clinical trials that it's able to even uh, more aggressively lower LDL cholesterol, particularly if it's used at its maximal recommended dose of 80 milligrams uh, per day, even beat some of the other established statins in both lowering the LDL cholesterol, but also in reducing cardiovascular events in patients. So I I tend to uh, use that particular agent or some of the other established agents that we talked about. Uh, First, there are some other new kids on the block that are also being studied. It's always a little harder for the new kid on the block uh, to show improvement in clinical outcomes because, of course, now it's no longer ethical to do placebo-controlled studies. So there we need to have head-to-head comparisons before we can be definitive that not only do these newer agents lower LDL cholesterol, but they actually translate into improved outcome. And to answer your second question, with azetamibe, which is uh, obviously not a statin, it works uh, from a different perspective, it appears to be definitely complementary to statins in lowering LDL cholesterol, but whether it will actually also translate into clinical outcome benefits has yet to be established. Now, fortunately, there is a very large trial that's ongoing called Improve It, uh, which is a study in post-acute coronary syndrome patients where, in addition uh, to an established statin, simvastatin, uh, patients are randomized to receive either azetamibe or placebo, and this study is ongoing. It's a very large study, so hopefully in a few years' time, the answer will be in as to whether the improvement in LDL cholesterol lowering that one gets with combining a statin with azetamibe actually translates into a clinical benefit. I'll be excited to see that when that comes out. Along these lines, let me ask you about two other agents. Should we be using more niacin for HDL raising and for particle size shifting? And then the phenofibrates in in light of the field study and, and particle size, where do those fit in? It's a great question. The niacin has, of course, been around. uh, Maybe one could even consider that the first lipid-lowering therapy. I think in the past, although there are good studies consistently showing its improvement, in particular, as you mentioned, not only on LDL, but potentially raising HDL and potentially dealing with uh, triglyceride elevations, maybe even better than the statins, the problem in the past has been that uh, at doses that would uh, be effective in that way, patients often had side effects, particularly flushing, uh, which wasn't necessarily diminishing over time or necessarily uh, mitigated with the use, a concomitant use of aspirin. So I think that's sort of slowed the uptake of uh, niacin over time. There are some newer preparations that appear to have better side effect profiles, but I think niacin remains a sort of second-line therapy uh, with most patients, uh, again, starting with statin therapy first. But there may be instances where you need additional HDL raising or uh, triglyceride lowering that statins by themselves can't accomplish, and niacin would certainly be uh, a good consideration in that setting. Now, the fibrates have a similar profile in terms of beyond uh, lowering LDL, they uh, appear to have a relatively preferential uh, HDL raising effect as well as a potential lowering of triglycerides. And you mentioned the field study, and there have been some other studies with fibrates, including post-myocardial infarction. The results are sort of mixed. There hasn't been as consistent or certainly as dramatic a reduction in cardiovascular outcomes uh, despite being on uh, fibrate therapies with a bunch of different fibrates being studied, uh, at least when compared to the statins. 
So I think in general, most folks are, are going to be on a statin. That's going to be the initial therapy. And then you're going to tailor the lipid or cholesterol-lowering therapy uh, to your patient uh, who's either uh, already on a statin and needs uh, additional help to get to their uh, LDL target or diabetics, for example, who have in particular not only LDL problems but uh, have uh, often a profile of very low HDL and sometimes high triglycerides. So I think you'll have to individualize with the use of niacin and fibrates and azetamibe as well with statins really being the uh, front runner uh, in most instances. I want to thank Dr. Sean Goodman, who has been our guest as we've been discussing the appropriate follow-up of patients with acute coronary syndromes. Dr. Goodman has been discussing some of the finer details of what I think is a very nice way of thinking about following up these patients, A, B, C, D, E, F. And again, to reiterate that acronym or checklist, A is for antiplatelet therapy, aspirin and Plavix. The other A is for ACE inhibitor or ARB therapy. B for beta blockers and blood pressure control. C for cholesterol control, focusing on getting that LDL under 100 and more data suggesting perhaps under 70, maybe even more beneficial. The D for don't smoke, diabetes control and diet. E for an exercise regimen. And F, make sure you have follow-up with your patients. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.